On the Empire Podcast this week, we welcome two of the most exciting directors around, Alex Garland, who made his debut with last week's Ex Machina, and the force of nature that is Paul Thomas Anderson, director of Inherent Vice. Plus the usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that has discovered that looking for a flat to rent in London is an up-a-dawn pride-swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about. It is horrible out there, people. Horrible. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by just two colleagues of such lethal cunning but to help me write their intros I've turned to Poetweet which is a a new website that composes sonnets and other poetry formats that I can't pronounce out of your tweets it goes back and finds your tweets scans of her rhymes and composes the tweet here we go first up is our art house guru Fewer's Guide that's the name of the poem Fewer's Guide Mm -hmm. Cross Rail and Only God Forgives that feels like four points dropped on the Godfather from the archives, a fan escaped. Welcome, Phil Disemblian, poet <laughs> laureate of the podcast. How are you? That was quite good. It was good, wasn't it? I enjoyed that. I don't remember speaking about an anteater, <laughs> but it's possible. Do you remember uh, talking about four points dropped? Of course you do. You're a Spurs fan. Um, <laughs> next I'm week. laughing. I don't understand the joke. But <laughs> Football. Me neither. The Blues beat the Reds the other day. Oh, did they? <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on, you Blues. <laughs> I wasn't happy. Len is our online editor. You've just heard him now. This is the title of the poem, Is Gold. Kent. Halfway through Superman 2. And I have a dragon to discipline. Good man! Empire forums are back online. <laughs> James Dyer. That's amazing. That's pretty profound. It is profound. I might publish that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and here's mine. What's the website that does this? Poetweet.com. Go to that. Type in your, your username. You can type in anyone's username. It's not one of those ones where you have to type your password in. You just type in anyone's username and it will scan all your tweets, find the rhymes and compose a <laughs> nonsense poem. Okay, here's a proper question. This is from... At No Soy Braulio, he says, I don't have your real name, sir. I'm so sorry. But he says, I'm from Mexico. It's a good start. Who is your favorite musician and who would you like to play him? Or her. Or her. Ellie Goulding, James, for example. You're a massive fan of <laughs> Ellie Goulding. Um, literally, as we came in here to the, uh, the pod booth, the Empire Podcast is now recorded at, the, uh, at our uh, massive studios in the heart of London, I'm not going to say exactly where, but Absolute Radio, Magic, they're all based here as well. So as we were walking in, Ellie Goulding, famous pop star, walked out past James. He didn't have a clue who she was. I didn't. And Not someone said, that's Ellie Goulding. I was like, hmm? <laughs> no idea. And then they sung that song about Starry Eyes. I was like, oh, right. Yeah, that one. I understand. That one. I, my finger is in the pulse, not on, <laughs> in the pulse of popular culture. So if you were to... Uh, do you have a favourite musician, first of all? Uh, Neil Hannon from The Divine see, Comedy? I, 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 was, I was trying to, by way of explaining that I once knew about music, saying that I was very into the, the grunge scene of the sort of mid-90s, uh, and very early Pearl Jam. Now, now I would say, I would like to see... This is exactly where I'm going with this. Pearl Jam the movie, starring Chris Hewitt as Eddie Vedder. It's uncanny. It is good, isn't it? That's uncanny. The Swedish chef playing <laughs> Eddie Vedder who, who would the play? Pearl Jam biopic. Who would play Eddie Fedder apart from me? Obviously, I'm Channing might be, Tatum. I might be busy. Channing Tatum yeah. as Eddie Fedder. Yeah, I don't. I don't see that. Yeah, it would be, shall we say, a fanciful recreation that only borrows slightly from history. A young Douglas Scott, not as he is now, old and bitter, <laughs> <laughs> and appearing in Taken Three. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know who would play him. He'd play himself, like he did in Singles. <laughs> It's like, one more time, Eddie, you didn't quite get that. Once more, we're feeling... Um, Phil, what about your favourite musician? Is it Werner Herzog? <laughs> <laughs> Werner plays the spoons? Yes. <laughs> it isn't Werner Herzog, no. Um, do I have a favourite musician? 
I don't think I do. I just have favourite bands. Okay. I don't think anyone wants to see films about them, though, to be honest. Who, They're who, all fairly niche. Who are your favourite bands? Um, I like bands like... Like Busted. Mm, <laughs> the Travelling Wilburys. That would make a good movie. The Travelling Wilburys. The Clash of Egos between Jeff Lynne and... and uh, um, Dylan. George Harrison and Bob okay. Dylan and yeah. all the other big big names in that ill-fated pop supergroup combo. Um, my favourite bands... Uh, I don't think anyone cares about my favourite bands, to be honest. Favourite band is R.E.M., so... By extension, I guess my favourite musician is Peter Buck. <laughs> um, no, let's go for Michael Snipe because that's a lot easier to cast. Uh, J.K. Simmons, really? I mean, Malkovich is a big resemblance there, but Simmons has the right voice, I think. I thought Malkovich would be a good choice as well. That'd be good. I thought you could play him, James. You're, you're bald with facial that's hair. That's really the yeah. only prerequisite, isn't it? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Snipe going around. This is not my temple. Being all, all miserable. That'd be good. I could do that. Yeah. Nice and easy. There you go. I think we've we've answered no soy braglio's question to uh, to nobody's satisfaction. That's good. That's a good start. Next right. question is from at official underscore Anthony, the official underscore Anthony, who says the interwebs is going nutso over the changed Fantastic Four origin and Ghostbusters reboot. Should any franchise be sacred? Yes. <sighs> this is one of those questions, isn't it? Yes and no, and yes and no. I mean, the thing is, I could rail about all the terrible remakes, but then you have to kind of then take a step back and concede that there are actually very good remakes um, and, and the motivations for doing them. I think the problem is, is when a film is great, there is only one reason to possibly revisit it, and that's because current generations aren't going to discover it. You know what I mean? So kids today aren't necessarily going to watch Rear Window, but they will watch... Disturbia. Yeah, they'll because... turn off their Ellie Goulding MTV <laughs> videos and they'll... <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I understand the mentality that you can take a great film and you, you know, you're essentially refreshing it for youths, you know, who spend most of their time slinging re-ups on corners and doing all that stuff that they show us in The Wire. Um, you know, that's the only... You need to speak their language, which involves, you know, replacing Jimmy Stewart with Shia LaBeouf. And that's what one does. <laughs> At that point, you go, hang on, this is... This is not... It's like that moment when you do your online shopping, you know, and you're like, I'd like to order a can of peas, please, and and they give you a mouldy banana instead. But yeah. we didn't have any peas. Oh, here's, a, is, here's a banana. It's, it's like, an appropriate replacement. I ordered the Jimmy Stewart. He's mm. given me a Shia LaBeouf. It's not quite the same thing. It's just, it's just running around the flat, run, running into walls and, and being arty. I don't, I don't want that. Yeah. I ordered, I wanted peas and you gave me Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely yeah, don't want that. That's why you can return them for a refund. <laughs> um, but that's not, a, I mean, that's obviously not a franchise per se. There's no, there's no rear window to double gazing. <laughs> oh, right. good, uh, good. Yeah. But, 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 I mean, it's topical, this question, because obviously this week there's been news on many fronts, mm-hmm. uh, reboot and franchise. Yes, has. Fran boot, whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> Namely, most recently, Chris Pratt being linked with the role of, uh, of, of the Indiana Jones role that we thought Shia LaBeouf, you know, topically, was going to fill Before as, he as it. mutt yes, but um, in the film that doesn't officially exist in any capacity, as now <laughs> lives in the space between spaces on everyone's <laughs> DVD shelf. Um, it, it, and so hence, hence Indiana Jones Raiders. This is a, a topic that comes up and it, people get very animated about on this podcast and I'm sure amongst our listeners as well. People do feel like this one in particular... Even more than Ghostbusters, I would say, is one that people have strong feelings about. I think that's because we've seen the the, ca- the capital of this franchise diminish over the years slowly. From you know, from a high point, perhaps obviously the first one, the third one was very good. My brother swears by the second one. Fourth one was an aberration. Do we want to see a fifth one? Personally, no. I think Chris Pratt, if you're going to pick anyone, is the right person. But this mm. role for me is so so 
Harrison Ford. I just don't see how you can find space. Is it the same thing? It's the same issue I have when they, they talk about doing a young Han Solo movie. I just, I, Chris Pratt's fantastic. Um, we've said this in the podcast already. He arrived, if anyone watched Parks and Recreation and loved it, James, you miserable list. Um, <laughs> you know, they would have seen that Chris Pratt is phenomenal. And then he arrived in Guardians of the Galaxy. He's been in stuff like Zero Dark Thirty and, you know, he's been in the supporting roles, Moneyball, that sort of stuff. He's great. Guardians of the Galaxy, there's like a movie star, like dripping with charisma. Fantastic. But Harrison Ford, you're absolutely right, is Harrison Ford. He is one of Lee greats. And he owns that role. Obviously because no one else played it. Sorry, Tom Selleck. But, you know, no one else has played that apart from that guy in that dreadful LucasArts game. You know, the one who goes, oh, I want to get it in there. Oh, it's too hard. You know that one? You know the uh, the, the LucasArts Indiana Jones games? I do. Love those. Which were repurposed because it's full of innuendo. Do you not remember this? There's a famous innuendo track. Anyway. 100% agree with you. I think this is a house, this is a Harrison Ford kind of retire the shirt type of deal, this, this particular yeah. character. And I think this is wrought with danger potentially for Chris Pratt. It's a huge role, but he's doing so well at the moment. Yeah. I, he's always going to get compared. I think Harrison Ford, obviously, you know, he was a carpenter, then he was in Apocalypse Now, and then he was in, you know, Blade Runner and this. And, and you know, his, he was a fully-fledged movie star from the minute he steps on screen. Mm. I think Chris Pratt is still on that journey. He's really good in uh, Guardians, think, and I think yeah. he's fantastic, and I think he's certainly on the way to being that. But Harrison Ford, I mean, he's so good. And the other thing about it is that this was a fully-fledged movie star movie. It was like, it, it was rooted in the matinee era. Yeah. It had freshness, it had originality for the time. It's going to be a bit stale, I think. I think it already is a bit stale, and I would be slightly concerned. The other thing that's kind of interesting about this news is is that obviously Chris Pratt was linked with that Uncharted role, well, which we've talked about, and and that was obviously the the Indiana that wasn't. But Guardians of the Galaxy is essentially playing a variation on Indiana Jones, just Indiana Jones in space, but yeah. although a dumber Indiana Jones. You know, Indy's really smart, and you know has, you know, there's a lot of strings to his bow, and uh, maybe Jurassic World in which. Pratt is playing a, a smarter character, might might convince us so he can do that. But also there's something about Harrison Ford. He had everything. He had the voice. Pratt's voice is a little... It's not quite where Harrison Ford's is, a little higher than that. You know, there was something about Ford is a rugged man's man. And I just think... I, I think Chris Pratt's fantastic, but he's not quite there. I don't see anyone at the moment who can replicate that. I think you're right, because cause Harrison Ford represented the link between sort of this new poppy Hollywood and the Gary Cooper Hollywood. Mm. And I don't think Chris Pratt is close to doing that at this point. So, yeah, I would say, hmm, if you anyone, do it with anyone, do it with him. I just don't want to see him do it, personally. But th- this is, I mean, broader than all of those specific instances, it's just that there are certain characters in cinema that are so iconic, that sort of transcend eras. You talk about reinventing films for new generations. I don't think anyone needs Raiders of the Lost Art reinventing. I don't think anyone's lost that. And he's still one of cinema's most iconic characters. And I think anyone who steps into a role like that runs a risk of being, you know, received yeah. very negatively. And also, because there are only four, and because there's only been one Indiana Jones, apart from ill-fated LucasArts things that nobody remembers, um, because there's only been one Indiana Jones, it's not like Bond. It's not like where we go, we'd be, you know, normally if, if India had followed the Bond model, we'd be on our fourth Indiana Jones by now. We'd be going, yeah, Chris Pratt's good. Like, I, think, I think he'll do well. I think he'll follow nicely in the in the footsteps of James Belushi, uh, who was an unpopular choice for the the, for the <laughs> third iteration of that character, uh, or Adam Sandler. You know, one of the reasons why I think there's a lot of excitement about the Force Awakens is that there it's Harrison Ford. Yeah. It's Harrison Ford as Han Solo, and he's back again. And even the fourth Indiana Jones movie, which sometimes I am forced to admit exists, he is fantastic in it, and he is Indiana Jones in that film. And he's not. Sometimes you get a sense of Harrison Ford uh, in 
some of his more recent movies that he is vaccinated in. Uh, and he, I didn't get that at all with, with, what's it called? Kingdom of the Crystal something? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I just, mm. But he's brilliant in that. But this is, this is an iconic role. I, this is the one that's sacred for me. I don't think you touch this one. But in terms of the other news that you know, official Anthony was, was talking about, so the Fantastic Four trailer, Josh Trank's Fantastic Four trailer, finally went online this week, uh, along with the the logo poster for the film, which is a very, very refamped uh, version of the classic four. It's not in a circle anymore. Mm. It's, a, it's a square. Wow. It's slightly different. And uh, the origin of the uh, Fantastic Four, if you don't know it, originally in the comics uh, back in 1962... Uh, four intrepid people, Reed Richards, Sue Storm, Johnny Storm, her brother, and Ben Grimm, Reed Richards' best friend, who's a bit of a knucklehead, uh, pilot a space program. They go into space and they get bombarded with cosmic rays. It alters their DNA fundamentally. They come back and they find that they have incredible powers. They've become the Fantastic Four. So Reed Richards becomes Mr. Fantastic. He can stretch parts of his body, all of his body, in fact. Um, Sue Storm becomes the Invisible Girl, later the Invisible Woman. Uh, Johnny Storm can flame on. He can turn his body into flame. It becomes a human torch. And Ben Grimm becomes the big ugly rock thing called The Thing. Um, But this one, Josh Trank's one, is proper hard sci-fi. I interviewed him for this about a week and a half ago. He cited David Cronenberg as an inspiration, David Cronenberg's body horror, as an inspiration for this movie. The, the trailer, if you haven't seen it, check it out, is really somber, really serious, and just teases about what the film is going to be. Uh, but it's clear that the, the origin uh, of, the, of the FF, and in fact the makeup of the FF themselves, have been, has been fundamentally changed. Bombarded by cosmic rays, if you will, in a, mm-hmm. in a Hollywood screenwriting lab. So now they're, they're much younger, and they don't go into space to get their powers. They seem to go in, well, they, well, they go into another dimension. So that's interesting. It seems to follow the ultimate Fantastic Four comic book, but what are our thoughts on that? I mean, I'm okay with this. I'm all right with stuff like this because we'll, we'll always have we'll always have the Tim Story movies, <laughs> but we'll always have the comic books. Yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? Given that the Tim Story movies are, I think it's fairly safe to say, utterly dreadful. Oh, they're not um, utterly dreadful. They're pretty dreadful. They're, they're, they're fun. No disrespect really... to Tim Story, who I've interviewed is a very nice man. Very nice man. Sorry, uh, Tim. They're fun in a kitsch kind of way. You know, Rise of the Silver Surfer is 88 minutes long. You can't go wrong with that. <laughs> you know, it's got some decent sequences. And it's it's the, the, the film that made Chris Evans really true. ping All on, that on people's true. radar. But it's not, I mean, they're, by no account are they you know, joining the pantheon of great comic book movies. They are not. So I think, you know, when you have lowered the bar in such <laughs> regards to a certain extent, you know, but you, you've got the same thing. You could say this about, uh, about JJ in episode seven. You know, a lot of people don't like the prequels, therefore the bar for Star Wars has been lowered. Therefore, it's not such a problem to hurdle over the thing. In the same way, Josh Trank with this, you know, it's not like he's tackling a sacred cow. He's not trying to redo Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's redoing Rise of the Silver Surfer or con- rebooting. Mm. Fantastic Four and so he doesn't have his work cut out for him in the same way it's an interesting you know it was an interesting trailer I think the reaction online seemed to be rather than hey this is great it was wow this is really good you know like we thought this would be dreadful it's not dreadful huh and actually that was the way I came to it I, I'm now quite excited to see this film so yeah it's interesting because this movie has been an utter lockdown there's been rumours that it's troubled you know that, that you know the script may be in flux, et cetera, et cetera. All of that, I guess, doesn't ultimately matter if the, if the finished product is good, i.e. Titanic. But, um, yeah, I didn't know what to expect when I sat down uh, to see the trailer. I'm interested to see, you know, how long it will be before Ellie Miller finds out who gave them their special powers. Uh, sorry, that was a Broadchurch reference. Did anyone notice the Broadchurch music is actually what scores this trailer? Oh. Sorry to see that. Yes, yeah, that's Olivia Coleman's character in Broadchurch. So okay. It's very topical and funny. Okay. Um, that was the Broadchurch music. Uh, yeah, it was Broadchurch music. 
I've never seen Broadchurch. Should Have I you... see it? It sounds good. I've never seen it either. No. Have you seen the Fantastic Four and Fantastic Four Rise of a Silver Surfer? No, I, I saw the first <clears> one, <throat> though, uh-huh. um, like a year ago or a year or so ago. And it was, it was a film of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't rush to see the second one. Should I? Is it better? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was fun. I, it was fun, but it seems like the, the, the whole superhero world, cinematic world, has moved on a lot since then. Those sort yeah. of broad, cartoony superhero movies, they're just not trying to make them anymore. They're trying to give everything a sense of, obviously, we've taught, you know, gravity and gravitas, etc. So we'll see. I don't know. This one hard, seems harder to me as someone that isn't as familiar with the comic book origins mm. to, to take these characters and make them Man of Steely or Dark Knighty in terms of real rootsiness because they are more cartoony looking, especially... The Thing. Exactly. Yeah, the he's, thing. He's fully CG. He's not where he's fully CG, and he looks like he looks like sort of the ass of a volcano at times. That's not a bad way to look. I guess, um, you, know. you know, he's not wearing shorts, is he? That was a bit of a controversy. Yeah, there's only one shot at the end of the naked. FF together, mm. and they're not in costume. They're not in their traditional costume. So there's a sense, there's a rumor online that they may not have code names in this film. They may not have costumes in this film. It's it's that different, guys. It's that groundbreaking. Should we be surprised, given that this is the director of Chronicle? Probably not. No, really like Chronicle though, <clears throat> so that gives me yeah, great like, hope. Yeah. Chronicle's fantastic. Lots of visual flair and interesting ideas, visual ideas and character work. Worked hard at the characters, and made it work, and made it fresh and original. So who knows? So we don't think Fantastic Four is sacred. I don't think we, we think Indiana sacred. Jones is sacred. Yeah, but we don't think Fantastic Four is. Yeah, that's interesting. No, oh, why? You're not really looking for an explanation as to are why we, that you, is. Are you genuinely, without irony, comparing the Fantastic Four movie with Raiders of the Lost Ark? Good. I'm comparing Fantastic Four as an idea, as a concept, as a property. It depends where you're coming from. If you're a colossal Fantastic Four comic book fan, I'm sure maybe you would. But I mean, I grew up, I was given Raiders of the Lost Ark on VHS for my 12th birthday. I had all my friends around and we watched it and it was amazing. And it's lived with me forever. And I still think it's one of my favourite films, but, uh, top 10 favourite yeah. films easily. But why is it different? I mean, my, my, my point was, if Fantastic Four... If Fantastic Four fans don't like this, they always have the comics. Well, but we all, we'll always have the first three Indiana Jones films. But they don't, though, do they? They won't always have the comics. Like because the Fantastic Four comic has kind of been wrapped up now, hasn't it? Oh, it has, it'll come back. I, what I'm saying yeah. is, you know, if it were such a sacred cow, mm. presumably one wouldn't be, you know, turning it into a burger. And it's it's still available. Historically, you'll still be able to go back and get the Lee Kirby issues. You'll still be able to get all those, you know, the John Byrne run. You'll be able to get all that sort of stuff. It's not it's not going to be completely wiped out of history. Sponged from history. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or is it? Um, <laughs> But that, that's that's kind of interesting to me that you know you feel that way. But it's the same thing. It's like for me, comic book movies are their own beast. What Marvel are doing with their comic book adaptations is that there's great arcs in the comic books, and they're kind of they're nodding to them now and again. But they're doing their own thing. Um, it's interesting. I I interviewed Paul Feig recently um, for for Spy, but we talked about Ghostbusters and. He made that point. He's like, I'm not going to go around and take every single copy of people's original Ghostbusters film away. I'm just trying to do something new and fresh. Um, yeah. And so, you know, the new <clears throat> Ghostbusters reboot for me, I think it's quite it's quite a fun idea. It's something new, which is important. They're not giving us anything new with, 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 the, with the fifth Raiders at this point. We don't know yeah, where's yeah. the freshness. You know, it's just we're doing this thing because it's a property people love. Whereas with Ghostbusters, at least he's got a new idea, which he claims will, you know, share some of the things we loved about the original. What is that new idea, Phil? That's that's Phil. No idea. What's the new idea? Well, I think it's that they're casting women in the main roles. Am I correct? That is correct. (sighs) Bing, bing, bing. You win this bottle of water. Um, 
Who who's he cast? The cast has been announced, and it, it no place for Rebel Wilson yet. Yet she's on the bench currently, warming up on the sidelines. But currently, we've got Kristen Wiig of Saturday Night Live, Melissa McCarthy also Saturday Night Live, well, and she guest hosted it. Guest hosted it, yes. Um, Leslie Jones and Kate McKinnon. Also, also of Saturday Night Live. So he's so, a big Kids in the Hall fan. That's, that's one thing we've gleaned from this. It's Feig, not Feig. That's interesting, isn't it? It is Feig, yes. It is Feig. I've been calling him Paul Feig for years. Because so of Kevin Feige. Feige. I think Feige. that's the thing. Is, you know, it's Kevin Feige, but it's Paul Feig. I don't know. This world is weird. Yeah, um, but yes, Melissa McCarthy is obviously the go-to gal for Paul Feig. This will be his fourth movie in a row with her. She was a bit of a no-brainer. Everyone, The minute he was announced as director, everyone went, yeah, it's going to be Melissa McCarthy in Ghostbusters. Kristen Wiig, obviously, on Bridesmaids, they worked together. Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones are kind of unknown quantities. I don't think anyone in this country mm. really knows unless you keep up with SNL, which you would have to do through illicit means. Uh, certainly when I lived in the States, they weren't on the show, so I don't really know a lot about them in terms of their, their capabilities. But he likes funny women, and I'm sure he's, he's you know, searched the world high and wide, and, you know, he's, he's, he's got a good collection. What I want to know is, are the roles analogous to the original Ghostbusters? So, and who's the lead? So is Kristen Wiig. Kristen Wiig, to me, would be a good Fenkman uh, replacement. Melissa McCarthy would be a good Dan Aykroyd, Raymond Stance, and then you could have, you know, is, is Leslie Jones Winston Sedmore? You know, is, is Kate McKinnon the Sedmore character? Is, or, you know, who's, who's, who's uh, Egon? It's, yeah, it's interesting, because I don't know their, their, their comedic archetypes that well. No, neither do I. I don't, I don't know how they fit into that. This is another one of these things which sort of veers into, you know, less so than Raiders, but certainly touches on sacred cow territory, I think. Uh, I certainly have enormous affection for Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, which despite what Empire's Nick Seven says, is not better than the first film. Oh, not even close. Oh, Nick. Um, you know, and but but equally, you know, it is a film that you know is quite old now, and, and seeing it again reinvented for another generation makes sense, you know, f- financially if not necessarily creatively. So, mm. who knows? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna write it off. Paul Feig's very very competent. There's some very funny women in it, but equally, I don't see it being mm. better than the original. I I don't know about that. I love the original. I absolutely love the Never original. I. Uh, I adore it. It's one of my, you know when I was a, a kid growing up, it was one of my favorite films. Like I quoted verbatim. Um, I could quote the ITV censored version <laughs> verbatim. Let's, let's be honest about that. Uh, so instead of, uh, you know, <laughs> the, um, instead of the dickless joke, yes, it's true, this man has no dick, uh, they cut that out completely. Uh, it took me years to realize that joke was in the, in the film. Instead of call, instead of uh, Fankman calling him dickless, sorry, instead of Ray Stance calling Walter Peck dickless, they call him Wally Wick mm. in the censored version. And there's no blowjob joke either. But yeah, I wonder if, uh, you know, if you look back at Ghostbusters now, it still holds up as a film. It's 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 quite scary still, I think, anyway. Uh, it's got a wonderful sense of place. It's a great New York movie. Uh, it's a great team movie, and the, it coasts by the charm of those guys. But I'm going to say something very controversial now. I don't think it's as funny as, as people might think it is. Genuinely don't think that. It coasts, but it's, it's coasts by on gentle charm, which is a very Ivan Reitman thing to do. Uh, but I don't think it has belly laugh after belly laugh after belly laugh. It's also not an out-and-out comedy. It's not. I mean, it's very much of that era, is it, where it's kind of, I don't know if I'd necessarily call it a horror comedy, but I guess it kind of is. Comedy horror. Yeah, it's a comedy horror, whereas Gremlins is a horror comedy. Yeah, um, a horomedy. Indeed. But that's the point. I think that goes back to the original question of these. There was no real expectation. They were just making this film, uh, what it was, what it was. 
they weren't it wasn't set out as a comedy or a horror it was just ghostbusters you know and, yeah. and no one had done anything quite like it it was the beginning of that era and what's interesting about this casting as well is that obviously the first ghostbusters was seen very much as a, an snl breakout movie you know bill murray dan Aykroyd, or how ramus wasn't snl necessarily but uh you know it, it had that feeling about it um and eddie murphy at one point was going to be the winston sedmore character so yeah i think and obviously john belushi was going to be Finkman at one point as well, mm. if you, you look back at the history of that film. Uh, so by by going back to the SNL well, the SNL well, uh, I think Feig has done, has done a good job with this. A good job. I'm still intrigued to see if it's going to be a reboot. I was, I, I was thinking maybe they could make it a sequel. I guess Sigourney Weaver in there is maybe the owner mm. of a Ghostbusters franchise, but mm. apparently not. Uh, but anyway, yes... Uh, that is that's that's a question uh, from official Anthony answered. Um, I think we've wrapped up most of this week's news in it as well. Thanks very much for that, uh, Anthony. Uh, and if you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast, here's how you get in touch. You can email us. We're podcast at empireonline.com. Uh, we're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Please do not spam us if you're a sexy naked spam bot. And uh, we're also on Facebook as Empire Magazine. Okay, time now for our first guest. Uh, we liked Alex Garland's twisting, turning, thought-provoking directorial debut Ex Machina so much that we asked him to come into the pod booth after the film was released. Um, the result was as challenging and as fascinating as you'd expect from the man behind the big ideas of the beach 28 days later. And yes, Dread, uh, he was speaking to slash torturing Phil and James. Do enjoy. The official title for a while was Ex underscore Machina. And, and the oh, underscore going to happen again. Is it? it is wasn't. it or isn't it? It was never. It was never that. <laughs> no, no. That, that, I, I think that's just a. It, it's a marketing thing. I, I mean, I, I wrote a, a script. If you look at the script, there's no underscore on it right. on, on the title okay. page. Um, but somebody at a poster design stage thought an underscore looked appropriate, and maybe you know uh, it looks appropriate to uh, coding type use of language. I don't know. Yeah, I've got really no idea. Um, uh, so it's it's just a, it's a bit of design, I right? Guess. Typographical tomfoolery, just a bit of unnecessary HTML is what we're saying. How do you oh, feel okay. about things like that? Because as as writers, when people do things like add hyphens and stuff to stuff, it drives us up the wall. I would think that it would annoy you if you saw things like that. When it comes to uh, marketing and selling films, um, I know a lot of people do get very involved in that, and they. Uh, sort of get involved in the way the trailer's cut and the way the poster looks and stuff like that, and I don't. I never have done. It's partly because I don't trust my own judgment. I, that, that is to say, I've got my judgment about what I like as posters and trailers and the way I think they should be and not spoil endings and stuff like that. And, mm. uh, um, but uh, I'm so often wrong in a, in a kind of empirical way. So, so I'll see something and um, I'll think, well, that was a really bad trailer and that <laughs> film uh, breaks all box office records mm. and equally I'll see a trailer and think now that I really want to see and uh, it's tumbleweed and uh, nothing happens at the box office and that kind of thing so so I'm the wrong person to ask and I, I'm self-aware enough to know uh, I shouldn't get involved. Well the trailer for this was actually really good and worked very very well it's sometimes I mean do you remember the Slumdog Millionaire trailer and indeed the poster I don't know which just made it look like a romantic comedy right so but it worked it did work people loads of people went, went to see, see that film so yeah. Yeah. yeah, you'd have a difficult time setting this up as a romantic comedy, or maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you wouldn't. I would imagine that would be a big ask. Uh, you can cut a trailer to do pretty much anything you want, I've learned over the years. Right. You could definitely cut it as a romantic <laughs> comedy if that was the way that people thought, let's sell it as that. It's dangerous doing miscells, mm. but it certainly happens a lot, doesn't it? So. Yeah, it does, it does. Donald Gleeson, very funny man. 
He's hilarious, yeah. Speaking of Donald Gleeson, there's a lovely character, character moment with Caleb. He doesn't get the reference. He doesn't get the reference that Oscar Isaac uh, drops about Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? And he's just mystified. He's obviously never seen Ghostbusters. Right. Um, which I thought was a nice way of sort of enriching that character. Are there any um, particular sort of ca- other character beats of Caleb that, that you're particularly proud of? Oh, I don't know. Um, uh, n- not not that I'm proud of. Uh, things that I can see that Donal's doing that are very complicated and sort of very clever bits of acting. I mean, yes, he, he is. He's a very gifted comic actor, and what what he can do, as a lot of comic actors do, is they can really sort of dance a line between uh, allowing humour to enter a scene but not breaking it, keeping right. the drama alive at the same time. There's a point in the film where uh, Ava, uh, the machine that, that looks like a woman or a, or a girl in her early 20s, um, uh, is, is kind of putting him on the spot and saying, I'm, I can tell what you're thinking by your micro-expressions. They're betraying you. And at that moment, he gets completely freaked out by what his micro-expressions are betraying about him and is also doing the micro-expressions that are betraying <laughs> what he's doing. And, and it's, it's pretty it's pretty sort of high level that's a complex bit of acting it it really is and he does that kind of stuff a lot he's he's a he's a deceptive actor donal because um uh he kind of he 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 tricks you into you know actually i guess this is what a lot of really good actors do he he uses a kind of misdirection to get you away from from the hard work he's doing you know know, the duck's feet under the still pond that are paddling furiously that kind of thing we had alicia vikander who plays Obviously, the the Ava, yeah. the, a, the Ava and the the AI at the heart of the movie in the podcast and, and talking about that and she's she's brilliant at that as well. But yeah, she becomes extraordinary. Probably goes the other way in her art, doesn't she? She's very less very good. She's amazing. Yeah, I mean, what, what the, the thing about this uh, cast is that they've got they've got properly hard acting roles within this film. Uh, you can't you can't get by in some of those scenes on just charisma. Um, uh, you have to have serious acting chops, and uh, and that's what they've all got. Uh, Alicia's a, a really very, very powerful actress. I, I saw her um, initially in this uh, Danish film, um, Royal Affair, and it, it was very striking, you know. She's she's acting opposite some, some really uh, very charismatic, powerful actors, but you kind of look at her, and it's, mm. not, it's not because the other actors aren't good, it's because she's magnetic and... Um, Mm. Uh, she's she's also she's got a lot of control uh, over uh, yes sort of technical acting stuff but also a particular kind of control over physicality that I think comes from a ballerina's training um, she was a ballet mm. dancer at a high level for many many years as a uh, young girl and a teenager mm. so um, uh, she brings all of that yeah. a lot of control because her movements are all very precise very very particular it's uh, it, it, do you know, know the uncanny valley thing? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so what she was doing was the uncanny valley, basically. Yeah. In in action, she was mm. doing uncanny valley, and uh, uh, so it's so perfect, it feels slightly wrong to us, mm. and uh, but is also kind of perfect too. The dance sequence, mm. which I, in common with everyone else at the screening I attended, <laughs> loved thoroughly. Great, cool. Tell me about what direction you gave you gave the two of them. 
um, for that. I didn't give any direction. Come on, you must have disco dance. <laughs> throw some I don't shapes. know how to disco dance. I mean, Oscar Isaac obviously has a bit of a musical background. And he was, can do this stuff. I'm uh, sure his eyes closed. Sonoya, uh, mm. uh, the the other actress um, in the film, it's a four hander really, although it tends to get yeah. talked about as a three hander. Like Alicia, she's a trained ballerina and a dancer. And um, in terms of uh, direction, there was a choreographer, a guy called Arthur Peter, came in who who was. Is a brilliant choreographer and a very kind of celebrated choreographer. He also won like the UK Disco Dancing Championship in right. like 1997 or something. I don't know oh, where yeah. it was, but so um, so they're not your moves. No, <laughs> I wish they were. I wish they were. I can barely walk across a room. Did you um, pick the tune though? Uh, uh, I called a friend of mine who's very good at uh, um, music, and um, I said, "Hey, uh, give me a good tune." He said, "I've got it." <laughs> just the one you didn't there weren't a sort of he didn't send you a selection no he said he, he said look this is the guy that Daft Punk was you know no I'm not going to finish that sentence <laughs> he said <laughs> he said that uh, this is the uh, kind of thing that uh, contemporary music is very influenced by and um, oh okay yeah, right so, yeah, so I said <laughs> so I said uh, great and um, listen to it and uh, I knew it already tell but, us but he, 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 he said look this is the one to use and I said thanks very much tell us what it's called just for the listeners uh, I think it's Get Down Saturday Night Oliver Cheatham yeah. It's a heck of a track and a great moment. It was. It's going to be one of our moments of the year. Go on, so who's your unsung hero or next Machina then? Well, you could look at, you could look at all of the... Uh, all right, I'll tell you what. I, I was going to give a sort of diplomatic answer, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, give a, I'll give a specific one. Michelle Day, right? I've worked with Mish on several movies. In fact, actually, I've worked on her with almost every movie I've been involved with in a, in a particular kind of way. And... Um, uh, she comes up with ideas that make their way into the film. Uh, she's involved in, in uh, production design, specifically what is on the set and why it's on the set, the physical objects and where they are and stuff like that. Uh, the, 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 the sort of the dressing of the set, basically. And she comes up with ideas that often change a film quite significantly. And uh, her name is lost in the rollers at the end of the yeah. credits. In Dread, for example, she came up one day and said, I think that um, the character of Marma, who's the antagonist mm. in Dread, uh, should have a bath in the middle of her room where she gets stoned, right? She should get stoned in the bath because that, wouldn't that be great, you know? She, and she kind of relaxes there. And uh, so she, she, she brought the bath in and set it up. And then uh, I spoke to Lena and said, how about being in a bath? Are you cool with that? And, and that leads to... Uh, some material shot by Anthony Dodmantle, the DOP on a phantom camera, and then some beautiful VFX work overlaid by that by John Tum, the VFX guy. Some of the absolute standout shots in that film of someone getting stoned in a bath and some amazing iridescent stuff happening all around her, which is attributed uh, to a director. And it had literally, and I mean literally, <laughs> nothing to do with a director. Nothing. In, in Ex Machina... There's a really beautiful moment in the film, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, it's a subjective thing, where uh, Ava walks past, the, the, the robot girl walks yeah. past a painting of a woman in a white dress. And the woman in the white dress uh, is, I think, uh, it's painted by Gustav Klimt, the, the painting and the woman in the white dress is uh, um, Wittgenstein's sister, and Wittgenstein, the philosopher, has a role to play in the film, and it looks like a brilliant, clever directorial touch by me, allegedly, right, uh, which is a complex reference to art and 
Ava and all sorts of different things and philosophy and stuff. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know that picture existed until I walked onto the set and she'd put it there as a kind of surprise. Mm. She deliberately held it back. So, unsung hero, Mish. But believe me, mm. there's a ton. There's a yes. lot of them. And, and their work gets attributed to people like me and it's not me, it's them. That, that's basically it's what I'm most, saying. one of the most articulate rebuttals of auteur yeah, theory you'll you ever hear. That. One of my favourite bits of British cinema recently is the, the opening of 28 Days Later. Yeah, who, ripped who, off Day of the Triffids, go on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wonder maybe it was um, one of the Neville shoots. There's a, oh, when you say the opening, do you mean... Oh, you mean on the beach? On the beach right. in Melbourne, is it uh, similar? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, okay, so... No, 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 it was kind of ripped off Day of the Triffids. <laughs> Uh, but but actually, Andrew and I, uh, when we were, for, for a while on that film, it was just me and Andrew, the producer, just bouncing the script, for, I think about five drafts back and forwards mm. between us. Um, and uh, after about draft three, he said, you know what, we need to watch On the Beach. So we did. Oh, okay. Hurrah. The, uh, the, 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 it's one of these films that people just seem to want to will another sequel into existence. And, and you've been talking a little bit about it. Um, uh, recently, I just wondered if zombies are huge. I mean, they're infected, Phil. They're not zombies. <laughs> infected. I thought I'd get in there first. I meant zombies. No, I'm talking about zombies. You know zombies. what? Uh, you wouldn't have been getting in before me. As far as I'm concerned, it's a zombie movie. I get that there's a differentiation between the living dead, but like whatever. You know, they want to. Mm. Right. Okay. That was my do other question. You do you care? Do you care when people come up and, and, and talk about? It's uh, a genre film. It's a. Yeah. It, it was a. Uh, when I. The pitch to Andrew was at uh, Pizza Express in Charlotte Street. And I said, uh, how about a film with running zombies set in London with a lot of daylight? Mm. And he said, yeah. And that was it. <laughs> Bingo. That was the pitch. Well, The Walking Dead is huge, obviously, on TV. World War Z, Z, was something of a success to the point where they're going to make a sequel. Does that kind of zombified landscape make it harder for you to find a third film? Or does it make you think there's just demand for this and I should look at it? There were, there were various issues about a third film one of them was to do with all the the, the key rights holders being in agreement right there's a lot of them really? so uh, how many uh, four <laughs> right uh, me danny andrew and fox so so that's that's one aspect that, that that's a lot of ducks to get in a row in one way or another the main sticking point was that uh, w w whether it's successful or not in intention 28 Days Later was supposed to have something kind of aggressive and subversive in it, particularly, well, no, both those things, but the subversive aspect of it felt like part of it tonally, I think. And what tended to happen when I was thinking about what form a third film might take or sometimes someone else would come up and uh, suggest an idea uh, for what form a third film might take is that it felt like it belonged to the world of 28, whatever it was, but mm. not... It, didn't, it lacked a kind of aggression and a kind of subversiveness and there wasn't something that felt, it's sort of banal to say this, but surprising. Um, I mean, that is to say it could be surprising in plot terms, but not something that felt uh, sort of uh, had any kind of punk aesthetic, I guess, or something like that. Uh, but hopefully we've got an idea that does acquit that and, and, and then what happens is you run into all the other millions of problems uh, of, of trying to get a film off the ground, so yeah. we may we, we've been talking about the possibility of it, but man, there is a long way to go before yeah. you are standing on a a, a location or a sound. Of course, station. of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are very few films I can think of where the British Army end up being the bad guys that are British films. Can I ask a Dread question here? So I love properly loved Dread, Good. and I was really disappointed when sort of there was talk there was a sequel wouldn't happen, then it was going to be a comic. And is there any chance that we'll you know get traction I, on that? I, I think. Uh, you've got to look at where the talk comes from. Mm. Just speaking for myself, when 
uh, we were trying to sell Dread ages ago uh, to uh, f- where we failed to get people interested in it yeah. as a theatrical release in a spectacular way. I talked about the possibilities of sequels back then and then I hadn't really, I don't think, said anything about it then until quite recently when um, I was asked uh, uh, by IGN, I think, um, or somewhere or other, where, where I was talking about if there is a sequel, uh, it, it, it won't be anything to do with me. And th- th- there's a simple reason for that, which is that um, sequels are predicated on film success, right? Mm. And Dread was not a success financially. Uh, I'm glad you think so, creatively at least. That's that's really good news, uh, so I'm pleased. Um, uh, but, but definitely not uh, financially. And so it's very, very hard to make that case. Mm. What, what, what I hope, but this is now talking as a, as a punter, right, is that the character is so strong that they that it deserves a sequel or not a sequel a, a reimagining or whatever it would happen to be and that somebody else will do that i'd get really pissed off if i thought that not only did we fail uh, in box office terms but we also killed off the character in cinematic terms that would be even bleaker than it is now so i i have to hope that somebody else comes along and does a better job than we did uh, that uh uh, sincerely similar time to the raid wasn't it and obviously they shared certain narrative beats and they couldn't help but yeah although be... i couldn't i i genuinely I, I found it really mystifying the fuss that was made about that because because mm. i don't i don't actually think except in some but in some sort of relatively glancing ways i think the similarities are 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 quite small actually um that is to say you could find similar type similarities between any heist movie mm. within reason let's say or a movie set within a bank, or, or whatever it happens to be. So, um, I, I, I guess that wasn't helpful. But, but look, in truth, when it comes to the lack of success of Dread, I don't want to, you know, pass the buck in any way, shape, or form. We had an intention. It was an R-rated action movie of a certain sort. Other R-rated action movies like District Nine have done fantastically well. Mm. Um, I, I can't see anything to blame it on. Right, I, I just think we didn't succeed. We didn't interest people enough to go and see it, and that the responsibility for that is really with us. Um, and uh, the raid, um, I, I, from my point of view, it was uncomplicated. Uh, it still is. I'm glad it exists. Terrific movie. Like, no problem in that. Uh, mm. It's a good thing. Um, so, Alex Garland, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. A pleasure. Thank see you, you for the next much. one. I hope that was fun. I actually really enjoyed that interview. He doesn't mess about. Yeah. He doesn't mess that's, about. That's evident. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> he gave us quite a kicking <laughs> on a couple of those points. Phil in particular took the brunt of it. Uh, you couldn't see because it was radio, but at one point he was stepping on Phil's neck. Uh, <laughs> it was an unexpected turn of events. It really was. Good it wasn't my neck either. <laughs> okay, time now for movie news. Um, we've pretty much covered all the big stuff, although there was some things that happened towards the end of Taylor last week. Hey, look at that. The Empire podcast went up and then Hollywood went. Here's a lot of big news. Uh, so I guess the biggest one, casting-wise, was X-Men Apocalypse. Uh, so the casting of young Cyclops young Jean Grey yeah. and young Storm so it was Alexandra Shipp as yep. young Storm Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones as young Jean Grey and Ty Sheridan from Mud as uh, young Scott Summers so interesting there's going to be obviously an X-Men Apocalypse so it's the 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 old the new gang the new gang who are now the old gang are now going to e- meet the young versions of the older gang who are now the new gang who are now the new gang while Hugh Jackman is, is still knocking around somewhere and, and doing whatever it is that he does, which is usually kill people and grumble a bit. Yeah. It sounds good. It does sound good. Does very sound excited, good. actually. Uh, particularly Sophie Turner's casting. I think that's a very good shout. That's uh, spot on. Spot on. Tall, red-headed. 
Yeah, all the boxes ticked. Yeah, well, no, there's more boxes to Gene Grey than just tall and redheaded. <laughs> tall, redheaded, telekinetic. I think, I think I may have reduced that role to, uh, you know, it's, it's more superficial parts. But uh, yeah, very excited about that. And uh, also the news that Mission Impossible 5 has been... Most things in Hollywood, mo- most films get pushed back. And then it allows people like us to go, ooh, must be trouble. I imagine that's not very good. Mission Impossible 5 has gone the other way. It's come forward from December of this year, where it would have been going up, I think, directly against Star Wars. Maybe yes, the week after. I believe it's um, called We're Running From Star Wars. I'm not focus. so sure it is. I'm not so, I don't think it is. I really don't think it is. Uh, it's coming forward by five months. Now, there's running away. And then there's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> pegging it. Then, hey, good girl, you man. Yeah. It's good. We should have you on a podcast more often. Um, five months. So it's now coming out in July. Which, and they're still filming. Amazing. They're still filming right now. Yeah. As we speak, they're filming. Yeah. So... Well, it's a, fran- it. a franchise that's committed to practical stunt work and then practical effects, so I guess that diminishes the post-production process a little bit for them, mm-hmm. but I mean, fair play. Bloody hell, they yeah. filed their film six months early. Yeah. Um, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when Chris McQuarrie took that phone call. <laughs> yeah. I really yeah. would. <laughs> you know how you were coming out in December? You know how you were planning to sleep? Well. <laughs> yeah. What would you say if we said... <laughs> it's okay, Chris. We've hired assistants to sleep for you. They'll do all the defecation, all the things you need to do. Just focus on the movie. That's a studio executive. Uh, right. Interesting. I think it's interesting. Oh, it's good. We it's get clearly a, a sign of confidence. Although you could also argue, if you were being cynical, mm-hmm. that Paramount moved one of their movies, Monster Trucks, which sounds great, uh, to uh, <laughs> the end of the year from May, and that they had a slot. They need something to make some money in the summer months, and they brought that forward. Do you think Star Wars will now have to move to get away from Monster Trucks? <laughs> I think so. Run! Oh, that's always a worry. It's a monster truck. <laughs> it's got Danny Glover in it. Uh, right. Uh, New biggest, issue time. Biggest bit of news is that the new issue of Empire is, I'm holding it up, I don't know why, uh, is now on sale. £3.99, all good and evil news agents. Uh, on the cover is Avengers Age of Ultron uh, with all the team, all the team. So we have uh, Armour Bloke, Shieldy Fella, uh, Iron Man, Captain America, Black Widow, Hawkeye, the Hulk, look at that, amazing. Uh, Thor, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. No vision now. They're still holding back vision. Uh, There's on only one the cover. Vision. Assembled on the cover. Inside, my cover feature. Good Queen reference. We're keeping them up. It's good. Yeah, well, I thought we did Alanis last week. We could uh, do Freddy all this week. Yeah. Touched on immortality already. Otherwise, I'd have done the uh, Who Wants to Live Forever. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> okay. Uh, cover feature, Age of Ultron. I went and set. I spoke to Joss Whedon, Kevin Feige, the whole gang, Robert Downey Jr. Got lots of stuff, uh, lots of scoop on Civil War, Captain America Civil War. Uh, and Joss Whedon's future with the franchise, i.e. he's probably going to step down as director mm. following Age of Ultron because of the aforementioned problems that are going to assail Chris McQuarrie in the next few months, lack of sleep and, uh, you know, all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's really good. I really enjoyed writing this feature and I hope you guys enjoy reading it as well. Uh, loads of great stuff inside the issue, though, as to quote the great Chris Evans. We have a, a fantastic interview with Margot Robbie, who will soon, of course, be Harley Quinn in... Uh, DC's Suicide Squad. Uh, we have Nick DeSemlian talking to Neil Blomkamp and Charlotte Copley about Chappie, which is uh, Blomkamp's new movie about a, uh, a nicer robot than Ultron. We have a feature on In the Heart of the Sea, Chris Hemsworth and Ron Howard's whaling drama, which was literally pushed back six months the day after we went to press. Uh, we have Jennifer Aniston in the Empire interview. Yes, um, this is Jennifer Aniston as interviewed by Empire's Ollie Richards, the world's biggest Friends fan. Yes, so, uh, he outfriends me, which is... Uh, yeah, it's a great interview. He did a really good job. 
Yes, uh, good feature with Michael Mann and, hey, you never guessed, Chris Hemsworth, who features three times in this issue uh, for Michael Mann's Black Hat. It's a really good feature. For no what you've the God heard of Thunder and Lightning, very, very frightening. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Are we exhausting your knowledge of Queen stuff? You're basically exhausting my entire knowledge of music at this point. We'll do uh, Ellie Golding next week. Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. There's a great feature on Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. Inside as well, we also have set visits from the likes of... Uh, Ant-Man, uh, Robot Overlords, there's lots of robots. Uh, Entourage, you can read how Nick DeSemlian watched Turtle reverse into a parking space <laughs> yeah. uh, for an entire day. Uh, Alicia Vikander's in there. Sam Taylor-Johnson takes us through Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, we have a piece on the gunman. John Lithgow is a really fun John Lithgow interview in there. And this month's Pint of Milk, and I did it myself and I can't remember who it is. There it is, Jim Parsons. Uh, Sheldon from the Big Bang Dr. Theory. Sheldon he Cooper. was a delight Absolute delight. Can we do an issue spoiler? How hairy is his ass? Uh, it's a f- five. It is a five. It's You're a right. Five. I read on it. a scale of one to ten, on remember? On a scale of one to ten, yes. Not just, this is always a difficult thing for anyone out there who wants to be a journalist. If you ever end up working for Empire and you have to do a pint of milk and you have to ask a celebrity how, how hairy their ass is, do remember to append the phrase on a scale of one to ten. Yeah. which Phil continuously <laughs> forgets Give them and something. just says, how hairy is your ass? Please describe to me with a number of verbs and adjectives. Which then Eric Cantona misheard us, how airy is my house? <laughs> how airy is my house? How, how, how airy is your house, Eric? Let's go down this Give me some form of scale to work with. What, so, maybe a one to ten. <laughs> what is happening? One is a slight breeze. Ten is a hurricane, Eric. I don't know why I'm doing an accent like this, but uh, we are now friends. Uh, okay, so that's it. Plug over, movie news over. Let's move on to our second guest now. Paul Thomas Anderson may not have directed Event Horizon to his eternal regret, uh, like his namesake, Paul W.S., or starred in The Sweeney, like his other namesake, just Paul. But he's done right for himself as a writer-director of evocative, brilliant movies like Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, and The Master. He's back, back, back this week with his latest Inherent Vice, in which Joaquin Phoenix plays a drug-idled private dick who gets embroiled in a murky mystery of Chandler-esque complexity. Another friend's reference. Uh, He came to London back in December, and he spoke to myself and Helen O'Hara. Enjoy. Tonight, um, you are showing Inherent Vice in London at the Prince Charles Cinema. Yeah. Did you choose that cinema? I did. Why point at Prince Charles? We love the Why Prince Charles. It's where we oh, had. Oh, good. Okay. We had. We had. Um. We had a live podcast there in February. Our very first ever live podcast. Yeah. And they've been so good to us, and we we just love that place. So. Um. I love it too, and I've been there a few times uh, in the past, and um, it seemed like a great place to show the movie. In 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 by that I mean, well, first they're still showing thirty five millimeter, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Um. I think I had an idea, maybe when making this movie, that it kind of would should play good at at drive-ins or revival houses. Mm-hmm. I, and maybe what I mean by that, and when we were doing a run through this morning, and I just got so excited and tingly because I saw it on that screen, which is not the biggest screen in town, and it's mm. not the best screen in town. Yeah, it had all the kind of rough edges of of of. What it is, which is a rep- repertory second, second, second. Um, I don't know what you call them here, but a, a secondhand, secondhand store. I guess. Is, is <laughs> I mean that in the best way. You know, that's where all the good stuff is. That's where the stuff I go to see is usually. So yeah, it was seemed like a great fit for this movie. Um, but they used to they used to have like a marquee out front though. I remember. Yeah, that, they had a balcony. Well, they had the balcony, right? But right. then out front they had like a, like a, a kind of old wraparound or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. But that's not there anymore, is it? 
It's all gone. It's all, all I think pro- that's all gone, yeah. Progress, apparently, has, yeah, has, yeah. <laughs> has taken out. Well, we still love the cinema. It's, been, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's true. Hopefully do another live podcast in the not-too-distant future. But uh, but the, the film itself, I mean, you, you talked about uh, Inherent Vice. It has this wonderful, woozy 70s vibe. But is that the 70s you remember? Because you were... No, I was born in 1970. Yeah, so... so it And, you know, the funny thing is, is I, I keep... This is an important distinction. It's 1970s, so it's the 60s. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's the thing. I mean, I remember when we were making it, and people would say, like, let's move out the 70s. I was like, fuck off. We're making a movie about the 60s. Come on. <laughs> but I do it myself, too. I think it's, it's at the, the, the thing with this movie is that it's about a transitional time. It's clearly like the war between the, the, the sort of revolution that, that the youth could kind of come along and change things and get, mm. get, get something done, at least in America was coming to an end that they'd really kind of lost that battle and you know um that's what the book is about that's what Pinchon's mm. going on about mm. that's kind of a kind of common theme in a lot of his work so mm. uh, do I remember it no I don't so but I do remember what it felt like when I read the book the first time <laughs> yeah I mean, this is kind of the first adaptation of a Pynchon novel. Um, I, no, I read Gravity's Rainbow earlier this year, which was... Oh, you're better than I am. I couldn't well, get through it. It's too it, hard. To be honest, yeah. It, it was incredibly tough going. It's, I mean, amazingly rewarding at the same time because the writing is just so gorgeous. But, geez. Oh, it's a, cho- it's a chore. I know, yeah. it's hard. <laughs> I mean, will there be another? You know, is this the only Pynchon adaptation, do you think? Oh, I hope not. I hope somebody else does something um, one day. I mean, he, I'd l- even like to do something else of his. Um, having, you know, Vineland is another great book that I think could be adapted. Mason and Dixon is a great book that could be adapted, which, sure, I'd love to try someday, but... Gravity's Rainbow, too smart for me. I couldn't figure, I couldn't get through that. I'm congratulations. That you did. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I feel, I'm going to take that because I totally gonna, deserve it. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, when I first sort of heard about Pinchon, I went out and got Gravity's Rainbow. And I, I read one page. I was like, "You've got to be kidding me! There's no <laughs> chance." I and then I've I I, I have read a, uh, Gravity's Rainbow, a lot of it, but I, it's it's so challenging, and and I think now I could get through it that I that I understand his work better. So try again someday i would love when you do please come back explain it to me sure <laughs> and okay. tell me what no i just problem. read awesome thank you <laughs> <laughs> so it's a page a year maybe is that <laughs> is that the uh, yeah <laughs> get the 12 pages i mean you do a lot of rereading when you read pinch on and mm-hmm. that's and and i have to say that's kind of okay you know if you if you have the time and you have the will and it excites you enough on the first go round mm. that that rereading it is sometimes m- 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 more rewarding than than reading it, and and I, that that should be a bad thing, I suppose. It should be you should be able to get through it. But the joy of of kind of sometimes it, it, these books take you places that you don't expect it to go, mm-hmm. and that as a reader or, or you, you you can kind of get frustrated by that, and that's that's on you more than anything else. So you've got to give over to whatever it is he's going to give you. And so there's the only thing there's a there's a phrase the only thing more rewarding than reading Pinchon is rereading Pinchon. Mm. So that's enough about my literary. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably true. I mean, th- this one as well has a similar sort of. I felt like it was a com- it made complete sense, and I wasn't quite there yet. But it was totally making sense, and it felt like it was exactly the midpoint between sort of PI film noir logic and dream logic. Like it was, you know completely po- posed between the two the whole time because things just happen that 
kind of makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Well, as long as they're vaguely plausible, <laughs> that's kind of... I take that as high compliment, and I think that's good feeling to have from the film that, you know, the dots do connect. You don't have to worry about that. If you really want them to connect, they do. But the most important thing is just sort of riding along with this hero and his kind of haze and getting to the next girl, you know, to flirt with or to get information from or to, um, you know, Pinchon has a way of kind of presenting these stories that are um, at, at their best overly convoluted and that's kind of the joy is that it can kind of remind you of reading the newspaper every morning where <laughs> your fucking head is done in because you can't believe how how kind of complicated and sad and, and fucked up things are you mm. know but he does it in a way that's that makes you have fun you know you can have fun with it if you go with it and oh it's not homework it shouldn't be it shouldn't <laughs> be frustrating it should be fun no it is it is i think and also like amazing characters and character names also yeah. just like you know yeah they, it's just kind of a joy to hear about people called things like shasta and puck and puck puck beaverton shasta <laughs> faye hepworth uh rudy blatnoid what are some other good ones? Uh, Japonica Fenway. Uh, Crocker Fenway. Dennis rhymes with penis. His name is actually spelled D-E-N-I-S, but he's going to make it rhyme with penis. Um, sort of lege. Sort of lege. Uh, yeah, it's a long list. He's always been great with names. It's so. fantastic. And uh, I, I read an interview with you a couple of months ago where you also said that one of the, uh, the touchstones you had in your head when you were making this film was were the movies of Sucker Abrahams and Sucker. Yeah, now, Zaz. I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm always banging on, on the podcast about Top Secret, which is just about the greatest comedy of all time for me. I, I saw some Top Secret the other night, and it, is, it still holds up. It's yeah. so fantastic. I mean, endless, endless gags. Mm. Um, well, you know, I, what I meant by that was what happened was in, the, in, 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 in Inherent Vice, there's a sequence where Doc, it's a little bit in the movie, where Doc goes to uh, the Wolfman Mansion and the LAPD are, they're meant to be, you know, setting up a, a surveillance ca case for a kidnapping and mm. really they're fucking around, they're swimming in the pool and they're frying up cheeseburgers and they're like, you know, <laughs> playing ping pong, yeah. which, you know, if you come from where I come from, that is the LAPD. They're, that is <laughs> exactly what they're like. They're kind of, you know... Wrong, foolish, and goofy. And so it reminded me of those secret. I mean, the way he wrote about it reminded me of those great sequences in mm. Police Squad where, you know, you have this, this outlandish stuff going on. But the irony was it wasn't that far from the truth of the history of the LAPD and some of their behavior at certain mm. crime scenes. So I was like, this feels like a, a Zucker Brothers movie, the mm. way he's describing it. But it's also actually how shit went down. So that was this kind of weird hook into sort of going back to that stuff, which I know really well anyway, but it was just an excuse to say, this is a good way to watch this stuff again and, and get excited to get back into Inherent Vice to maybe squeeze some of that into the film. I mean, it was mm. sort of perfectly described and, and, and historically accurate for the LAPD. So they're like a Zucker Brothers movie. So do you set yourself homework almost when you're preparing a movie? Do you watch other movies to get inspiration from them? Or, or Yeah, I mean, I think a bit of both. I mean, um, sometimes it... Sometimes you don't want to see things that you that you know already and you want to stay away from things and you're just... And other times, you, you know, I went back to watch The Big Sleep just because I'd seen it, but I but I realized okay we're making a detective movie, which I never thought in a million years I'd make a detective movie. And was like if anything I, I thought I you know there's a million other types of genres I thought I'd 
make a movie of first. Mm. But seeing The Big Sleep again and sort of revisiting some of these things was was helpful in terms of releasing. Um, I think I've talked about this before: is that you you free up thinking that the important thing is solving the crime or the or, or following the plot. That you know that, that there are other reasons to do a detective story. Mm. Um, I think if anything, there was more like a, a good excuse with this movie to listen to Neil Young records over and over. Again. <laughs> you know, do you need an excuse. Uh, not that I need an excuse, but now you could call it homework, you know, and say like, oh, wow, you know, just to get your head in the right space and try to think like, oh, if we could try to make this movie feel like a Neil Young song, you know, mm. that we'd be on the right track. Let me just listen to that Neil Young album again. I've got to go to work. <laughs> Another 10 times. Might as well. It's homework. Uh, uh, you know, you got to put it on, on the drive on the way to work every morning and, you know, try to get yourself in that headspace. And Yeah. Yeah. Um, I saw Doc called a gum sandal rather than a gum shoe, which yeah. is brilliant. There's a recurring theme of the grossness of his feet um, from the Royal <laughs> Dane sandals, which I also liked. But um, but it, it's it seems very part of his sort of L.A. character, and it, it's you know the, the the noir detective is so associated with L.A. particularly. Yeah. Um, which is weird if you think about it, because somehow the genre should really feel more at home somewhere slightly darker, like Chicago or something. Yeah, like New York. Or yeah. Th- yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It, well, but the, well, basically, just so, you know, is this a sort of a continuation, a, a sort of a weird off kilter revolution of the of the original film noirs? I guess. I guess. So. I mean, that was what Pinchon. You know, I think he used the device obviously to like to fuck around, and you know, I think and he he sort of considered this his beach read. You know, like how to do use a detective story as a kind of dressing mm-hmm. to have somebody kind of walk through their the um remnants of what's happened to his generation you know what's what's happened to all these ideas these people have had these Mm. these brilliant ideas floating around it's kind of an excuse really i think to (laughs) to do that but you've got i'm sorry i'm kind of off my train you've had me thinking about joaquin's feet which were so disgusting (laughs) i mean he didn't wear you know he he really gets into stuff, and even like two months before we were shooting, he wasn't wearing he wasn't wearing shoes, and his feet were so fucking disgusting. Um, I can't I can't tell you. We didn't really do it justice. I wish I gotten more shots of just how disgusting his feet were. He never he didn't wear shoes for six months. Fucking disgusting. Yeah, that's not nice. Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but perfect, I have to say. Well, exactly. Um, we talked to Reese Witherspoon recently, and she was saying that she, it was almost like a, it seemed like a series of short films to her because people would come in for a couple of days at a time. You know, she came in, did yeah. a bit. Uh, I gather that they spent most of their time giggling and reminiscing about Walk the Line. Is this, is this the case? And you had to kind of whip them back into shape. Yeah, you know, um, I do remember sitting there thinking, I there there's a little there's a little too much fun happening here. There's a little too much giggling going on and, and um I did have to say that's enough of that. Let's we have to start rolling. But it and she's right that it was like a series of short films. It's very episodic. Hmm. So just as soon as you really had a good time with somebody, sort of three or four days into it and then they're gone on to the next thing. But yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of giggling between Reese and Joaquin. But the uh, the one person who's obviously a constant is Joaquin, mm-hmm. who's in virtually every scene. There's that, that, that scene between uh, Josh Brolin and his wife, but clearly Joaquin wasn't there for. Right. Can't really think of too many other scenes right. that he wasn't Yeah, there. but he's on the phone in the other room. So, yeah. you know, he was... Um, there, uh, um, there was nothing that we didn't do without him, I have to say. So he was there even there for that? He was he showed up to the... Yeah, the rent to line. be on the phone. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um I can't think of anything that we did without him, but that's great. 
if there's anybody you want to work with every single day, it's Joaquin. Yeah. I mean, really, you know. He doesn't get credit for being much of a comedian, but he's really funny here. I agree with you. Um, it would hate me for me to say this, but he this is the most like Joaquin. The Joaquin <laughs> that I know, I mean, is really this funny and, and sweet and kind of um, lovable, mm. to me at least. He it does reminds it. me of him. There's an amazing. I mean, he's not at all like the guy in the master. Nothing, you know. I mean, he's nothing like that. So, and I think people's impression of him is that somehow he's this weird, weirdo, and he's not that weird. He's just so sweet. Yeah. There's an amazing uh, reaction shot. It is in the trailer as well, where he gets uh, bonked in the back of the head. Yeah. And he turns around. And, and he tries. Yeah. Yeah. He goes down fighting. It's an amazing, amazing bit of physical comedy, and it's just so quick as well. I mean, how, how many? Was that something that came naturally to him, that, that, that side of things? Um, I think I get credit for that one. He, yeah. He, yeah. Benicio saw the movie and he said to Walk, he said, oh, man, I, I, you know, I've been trying to figure out a good way to get hit on the head and fall down in a movie for so many years. You know, I just go for the <laughs> fall. And, <laughs> and he was like, you came up with a good one. And then and I guess I'd said to Joaquin, um, I think you should go down swinging. So then he had to, you know, so that I, I get credit for that one. It's so good. But he did it so well. Um, obviously, back in the very, very early days of the movie, Robert Downey Jr. was 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 linked to the film. In an interview I read with him a couple about a year and a half ago, he said that you told him he was too old for the role. Right. Did that conversation take place? Um, I, it did take place, but you know, <laughs> in this day and age, it's so weird. You can you can, you can't meet with somebody about. We I, we we were never really that too serious about making yeah. this film. We were just sort of like talking about it, and then things get reported on, and then you've got to answer for it. When it's so strange, <laughs> uh, as, as, as you know. Um, but I don't think I, I look. Robert Downey can do just about anything, and he probably would have been great. But I did, I thought Joaquin was better to play this part. Yeah. I did tell Robert Downey he was too old. How did he take that? Took it like a man. You know? <laughs> Weeping, <laughs> gnashing of teeth. Exactly. <laughs> the usual stuff. He took it like, well, okay, I'm going to go cash this $65 million check in the bank <laughs> while you make your stupid little beach movie. <laughs> One nil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Paul Thomas Anderson, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, uh, let's start the review section. Phil, I know you have to run very, very quickly. Who are you doing today? Who are we interviewing today? Uh, we may be interviewing... Bill Nighy, although I can't possibly comment. <laughs> okay. Is he coming into this room to be interviewed? No. Okay, we're, we're so you're leaving, you're not kicking Chris and I out. We're going to the boat that rocked. The hotel that rocked. Amazing. Amazing. All right, so let's start with Inherent Vice. Yes. Uh, Phil Cat. Yes. People have heard the, uh, the interview, the Paul Thomas Anderson interview, but tell us about this film. Okay. Um, this film is Paul Thomas Anderson's adaptation of Thomas... Uh, more pronunciation trouble straight away. Pynchon or Pynchon. I can never work it out. Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon. It's his seventh novel. And the first, to the best of my knowledge, and I could be wrong, and if you've listened to my Alex Garland interview, you'll know that happens quite <laughs> often. Um, the first it's one a, to be Alec, adapted. Alex Garland. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Steve. Uh, uh, Alex. Steve, whatever. Um, the first to be adapted for the big screen. And that's no coincidence, because his books are... <laughs> impenetrable at times in the best possible way he's a, he's one of the great american novelists of the last 50 or so 100 or so years even um i have read mason and dixon it took me six years and i got as far as the and um it's really really thick stuff and so making this film it's it gives you an idea of kind of what you're wading into it's basically the story of a guy played by joaquin joaquin phoenix it's Hello, Joaquin my name is Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> you Eric, killed my father. <laughs> you killed my father. It's that sort of film. You can't work out what's happening. 
Uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays Doc Sportello, who's who's somewhere between. He's probably the midway point between uh, Philip uh, Elliot Gould playing Philip Marlowe in The Long Goodbye for yes. Robert Altman and the yeah. dude in The Big Lebowski. Yeah. He's a very stony, very hipster. He keeps getting accused of being a uh, a hippie. A hippie. Yeah. He's not really quite a hippie. He's more of a his own thing, really. And into his life comes his ex, played like a beautiful Zephyr, Catherine Waterston drifts through this film as Shasta, Shasta, um, Shasta Faye Hepworth, his ex, and she's got a missing boyfriend, who she's, this guy she's having an affair with. You're, From that... You're beginning to try and explain the plot. This I'm film. not going to try uh, and explain the plot. Because it's... No, no, no. no. Anderson I, says it ties up, but... Uh, yeah. I'm it's, just going to say, one. if you look at the plot or the synopsis in Wikipedia, it's actually longer than the book. <laughs> so, it, really, I won't do that. But what I will say is that the, 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 the investigation takes Doc drifting through this amazingly sort of elaborate and idiosyncratic journey that involves swastikered goons, um, a Ouija board, a sex clinic, um, real estate corruption josh brolin playing a guy called bigfoot who's a kind of a, a sad copper of sorts mm. who says things like molto panakeko molto panakeko i like his performance very much so he's trying to pronounce Joaquin phoenix's name as well isn't <laughs> yeah he? exactly they're all they're all really good it's full of full of great actors doing their thing and 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 somehow paul thomas anderson pulls all this together into something that sort of coheres i would say go into it forget about the plot Literally, just go on the journey. I'm gonna. You need to see it again at least once. I would say afterwards, but there's enough in it to warrant that because it's really very funny. Um, it's got lots of sort of texture and detail. Really good performances, as I say. I would say Catherine Waterston stands out. She's amazing. She's really. I good. honestly thought she was going to get a best supporting actress nomination. Wouldn't have been undeserved, I think. And, I don't think so. Yeah. And and Joaquin Phoenix is really really good too. It's obviously his film, his character throughout. Um, it's it's top mm. stuff. We gave it four stars. It falls yeah. just short of, of, of his best work, I would say. But it's, I, I, it's I very would agree watchable. with that. The interesting thing for me, and if you listen to the interview, you'll have heard uh, PTA talk about how Robert Downey Jr. was initially connected to this role. Kind of feel, even though he says his reasons he's too old for the role, I can't help but think of that movie now. And uh, I think Doc needs to be a bit more likable than Wacken Phoenix makes him. I think Wacken Phoenix is a very interesting screen presence, but not a particularly relatable one for me. But uh, but for me, the film is is very good. Not quite up there with his best, but but still, four stars worth. Go go and see it. Next up is Matthew Vaughn's latest movie, Kingsman, colon, The Secret Service, in which Colin Firth's super spy and Taron Egerton's raw recruit from the wrong side of the tracks team up to save the world from Sam Jackson's lisping megalomaniac. Uh, Jimbo. This is, as you say, Matthew Vaughn's latest bit of Daily Mail bait. Uh, it is. Uh, it, it does, I suppose, for Bond movies what Kickass did for superhero movies, um, which is to say, you will either love it or hate it. I, thankfully, loved it. Uh, huge amounts of style and panache. Ultra violent. It's sexy. It's really funny. It's incredibly lighthearted, and it's, I think, the perfect antidote to, you know, really the modern Bond, which is a much more serious, you know, sort of po face Bond. I mean, this is a uh, uh, is madness to the extreme. Um, I can see the. Uh, a couple of the more violent sequences in particular may rub people up the wrong way slightly. Interestingly, there is a... It's not the violence that's rubbed people up the wrong way, as far as I can tell. Um, there are people in, in the office and people I've met who are rubbed up the wrong way by the film's closing joke. Yes, the sexy and, times. And that I'm not going to say anything else about. No. Uh, go and see it and see what you think. Uh, I, I know what Matthew Fawn's going for. Uh, whether he gets it or not, is open to debate, but it seems to have rubbed some people up the wrong way. But this is an extraordinarily violent film. But it, it, for me, I'm, I'm with you in this one, James. We gave it four stars. I gave it four stars. I think it's got a lot of 
panache, yeah. a lot of style. It's very much a, a cousin to a Kick-Ass in that sense. Um, it's no holds barred. The, uh, there's a church sequence with Colin Firth, <laughs> which is extraordinarily violent. As I said in my review, it's like the last 20 minutes of Peter Jackson's Brain Dead meets the entirety of the raid. But magnificently shot, magnificently yeah. choreographed. And really interesting in how it makes you feel about violence and uh, your relation to it and your relation to the, to the character committing all the violence um, because it's it's shot and staged in an exhilarating fashion but you're kind of thinking I really shouldn't be enjoying this <laughs> uh, there's also an, there's there's something that happens later in the film uh, that I genuinely have not seen before on the big screen and you, it's not too often you can say that and it has divided people again but for me there's something really interesting about Fawn as a director he goes for it he yeah. doesn't hold back and I think that is to be Applauded. I absolutely love Matthew Vaughan because he just doesn't give a shit. And I just love that about him. He knows what he wants to do. He doesn't care, you know, what necessarily critics are going to think about it. He's not even thinking necessarily commercially. He's thinking purely artistically. This is his vision. This is what he wants to do. The fact that he finances the film himself means that he can kind of do what he wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and this is the product that he's put out. And it's, it's, it's fantastic. I definitely suggest people go and see it. Four mm. stars for Kingsman, The Secret Service. Uh, go check it out if you like. And uh, we have a Kingsman special coming up next week. Uh, it's not quite a spoiler special because it's not going to involve members of Team Empire getting around and talking about it because it will probably just dissolve into a fight about the final <laughs> shot. But um, nevertheless, we invited Fawn himself, who's a fantastic interview, very, very frank and very, very funny, uh, to come in and talk about the film and his career and all the spoilerific stuff. So from the church sequence onwards, he talks about all the third act developments. Uh, it's a fascinating, very, very funny interview. Uh, great Sean Connery story. I will... I'll give you that. Uh, so check that one out. It should be up Monday or Tuesday. Uh, also out this week, very, very quick. Sadly, we don't have a lot of time left. Uh, also out this week, we have Disney's Big Hero 6, which is a kind of Marvel mashup. It's based on a very little-known Marvel comic called Sunfire and Big Hero 6 by a Japanese superhero team. It's about the bonding between a young boy called Hero, who's a brilliant teenage inventor, whose brother is killed, uh, and the robot that his brother has built called Baymax, who's a personal healthcare companion and inflatable bundle of joy and naivety. Uh, and the they two of them form a, a partnership while also inadvertently starting a superhero team. For me, this is great fun. Uh, you know, Frozen was obviously a phenomenon. Uh, it is what it is, a very traditional Disney movie. This, in its own way, is a traditional superhero movie with lashings of comedy, and it's very, very heartfelt as well. And uh, at, at times, it's brilliant. And you will love Baymax, and you will end up doing Baymax's fist bump. That is a promise to you. And we gave Big Hero 6... Four stars as well. Um, and also heading this your way this week is Stephen Daldry's Trash, uh, to which we also gave four stars, and the Aussie crime drama Son of a Gun with Hugh McGregor and the ubiquitous Alicia Vikander, uh, to which we gave three stars. Uh, and that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more formulated fun when we'll be joined by Peter Strickland, director of The Duke of Burgundy, and someone else, because we haven't confirmed another guest yet, and I'm getting a little bit worried. If you're a famous person and you would like to come <laughs> on the podcast... Do get in touch, and by all means, come on next week's show. Uh, Until then, it's goodbye from James. I will not let you go. (laughs) Have you been Googling lyrics? Yeah, I was literally thinking, Bohemian Rhapsody lyrics. Oh, yes. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, It's goodbye from Phil. I can come in next week as Eric Cantona if you like, but goodbye. How airy is the house? It's pretty airy. It is pretty airy. Uh, And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to get one of those sexy spam bots to do a poet tweet. See you next week. Bye-bye. 